Welcome to People with Purpose. So many people are looking for meaning, but they don't know where to start. Imagine a world where everyone could just get their purpose out of them and then actually make it happen. I'm David Roberts, and I believe that we all have a purpose, and with focus and a little help, people with purpose make a difference. And this show is where these stories come to life. Welcome to another episode of People with Purpose. I'm very delighted today to be joined by um, Alice McVeigh, who's um, on a second career. Uh, she was uh, a concert uh, cellist, and uh, and then she's moved on to becoming a, um, a well, a, a highly regarded uh, author uh, in uh, speculative dystopian uh, uh, fiction and. Uh, or Austin-esque historical novels as well. So lots of really exciting words that hopefully, you, Alice, you'll be able to explain what they mean at some point. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for asking me. Yeah, it's great. It's great to see you. Great to see you. So, um, so, so you're an author. Tell us about that. Um, I think my whole life has been a sort of conflict between music and writing because one prevails at some times and the other prevails at other times. And they constantly seem to be at war because when I'm, when I was really successful as a, as a write, as a cellist, I had no time for writing. And I, when I did have time for writing, I wasn't happy with what I wrote. Um, so I'm very self-critical. Um, so then I was touring around the world with the Royal Philharmonic and the BBC Symphony and these other orchestras and thinking, I'd really like to write something, but I didn't have enough nerve and I didn't have enough time. And so when I finally did write something, I was incredibly lucky. I got picked up by a major publisher, um, Hachette, uh, Orion Hachette, uh, published my first two books, one of which has just been re-released, um, called While the Music Lasts. And that was publicized as The Secret Life of an Orchestra. Mm-hmm. And it kind of was the secret life of an orchestra. Um, it did really well. This is back in the 90s. I was so young. I didn't know I was born. <laughs> and um, it got to number 35 in the bestsellers in the whole of the UK. Wow. And the film rights were sold. And then I got deeply depressed because my um, we couldn't have a child. Mm-hmm. We had all these IVFs and it just didn't happen. And I got deeply depressed. So I, I sort of dropped the ball. And after the second novel, I didn't really finish the third. And my publisher ditched me. Mm-hmm. So I went back to music then. So I'd gone music, writing, music. So I went back to music then. And I really enjoyed doing that. And then guess what happened? I got pregnant. So <laughs> once that happened, <laughs> I was the happiest bunny in the world. But I, I was so ill, I couldn't either play all right. So that was a bit <laughs> so, so then uh, when my daughter finally showed up, I was a very, very happy bunny and too happy to write, really. Mm. And when I did, when, when she did get old enough that I could leave her, I did orchestral touring again. We toured Japan. We toured lots of places. Mm. I toured with most of the orchestras. Um, and then what happened was when she finally left home, no, sorry, at that point I became a ghostwriter. I decided that I needed to earn some money, mm. pull my weight in the house. So uh, I became a ghostwriter. And that was really really fun um, because what I did was I wrote some some autobiographies for famous people and I'm not allowed to tell you who um, because I've signed in blood um, but it, it kept my writing going and I love doing it and I could still be with my daughter and I that was what I wanted was to be with my daughter yeah sure sure so then what happened after that was she she grew up and went to Oxford University and when she did then I thought right time to write again and that's what's happened to me now mm. so now I'm writing 
two, two kinds of fiction. I'm writing dystopian, which I published with Unbound. And I'm writing for myself, which is a little crazy, um, Jane Austen-esque fiction. So I'm kind of divided between the two. So I'm still divided. Yeah. yeah. But uh, the, ch- the cello is on the back burner, I have to say. Um, and it probably always will be, but I still love the cello. Well, you need to keep that vibrato uh, finger, yes, uh, yeah, the, the, the strength, the exactly, <laughs> exactly. Well, you're, you're in, a, in in many ways, though, Alice. You're you're living uh, two of my dreams that I've never been able to live because because um, I uh, I've always been very very passionate about music. And uh, I played the, played the violin at school, and then played the piano, and then played the drums in bands, and and that kind of thing, and did a bit of DJing and all that sort of stuff. But I never had the uh, either the talent or the nerve or the drive or whatever it is to to do it as a as a as a professional career. And um, and I've all, I've all, I've often wondered how do you take something like a musical talent. And turn that into a career. I mean, I'd love to know how you managed to do that. I think you put your finger on it with nerve, really, because there are a lot of people, and I suspect you might be one of them, who have the talent, but not the nerve. And I've really suffered with my nerves. I had a major breakthrough in 19, oh, what was it? No, it was 2000. Anyway, um, when I was prescribed beta blockers, what beta blockers do is they enable you to play the cello without nerves. So you still have the passion, you still have the emotional commitment, but your bow refuses to shake. Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I, the number of times when I was in big auditions for the London Symphony Orchestra, the Philharmonia Orchestra, and my bow would just quiver a little mm-hmm. because I got so nervous. So I completely empathize with that. Um, so it is a cheat. <laughs> and I do think that the people who are born to play, like Perlman, uh, for example, don't suffer from nerves because they're, they're, they know that they're born to do it. But those of us who are gifted but nervous mm. need a little help. Mm, mm. And in fact, at one point I was a smuggler because I'm, I'm American and British. I had all my American friends saying, I've got an audition. Can you smuggle me some beta blockers? <laughs> they were illegal in America and legal in Britain. Oh, and so wow. I would smuggle beta blockers um, back when I went to visit my family in America outside Washington, a place called McLean. It's not famous. You needn't have heard of it. It's just a suburb of Washington, D.C. But anyway, so I was smuggling. <laughs> right, right. So yes, yeah, so I, I, I do think nerve is a big part. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So and and I think um I think for me it's that it's that um the the nerve thing wasn't necessarily about nervousness about performing. It was about uh, making that decision. I suppose to take a um a, a less secure route to 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 earning uh, earning an income because you know I was faced with a. I went to university and I was faced with a choice. Do I, do, what do I do? Do I get a job? Do I, do I, you know, go on the road and, you know, tour with a band and all that sort of stuff. And, um, it's exciting. Yeah. Yeah. And it it, it was, it was a case of, well, I'm, I'm going to get a job, aren't I? Cause that's, that's what, that's what you do. And, um, I, uh, I've had a great, I've had a great life with music because I've been able to play music and enjoy playing music as a, as a as a hobby so i've got no i've got no complaints no but it is, no you're a lucky bunny 
Mm, yeah, it is. I, I do. I also think, to be honest, I think you're younger than I'm, obviously, but but I think, especially when I was coming along, women weren't expected to earn a living as much as they are now. My daughter is is obsessed with with career mm. things. With me, it was more an idea of following my my dream, my passion, and I thought I would probably get married, and I did get married, and mm. and, and my husband earns a lot of money. And that's really nice. Mm. <laughs> um, so it's I've, I've been very fortunate in lots of ways, except for having a baby. That was really Hard. Yeah, but, yeah. Um, but but um, but no, I think it's it's it, in those days. But it was it's more of a sexist thing. So the men, like my brother, were all have to earn the living, and the women, like my sister and me, we both did music. We mm. both did music. Mm, mm. So we and we knew it was never going to be hugely a lucrative. Yeah. Any more than poetry is lucrative. I don't write poetry, by the way, but I have friends who do. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I, wrote, I did. I used to write poems to, uh, to to girlfriends when I was younger. Oh, how lovely! Yeah, yeah. And then and then I wrote poems to friends, and it became a bit of a joke. But um, yeah. but yeah, I um, I, I I like I like I like I like words. I mean, and again, that takes me on to the the second bit bit of envy that I've got for your for your life as well, which uh, which it, which is actually um, I, I I feel like everyone's got a book in them. You hear it said. And, um, and, and I believe it's true, uh, but, uh, but what does it, what does it take to, 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 to be an author? Um, depends on the kind of author. I was just talking about this the other day. Um, if you're, if you're gutsy and hardworking and you have talent, which you probably have, um, uh, you can make it as an author if you're willing to write genre fiction, um, but you probably aren't. Do you see what I mean? See if you like me. Mm. You wouldn't want to write romance, which is where the big money is, mm. or erotica. Mm. I tried erotica and I wasn't very good at it. Um, so the the big sellers are the ones that don't kind of draw the 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 really. I don't know. <laughs> it, it, what most people want to write is literary fiction, and there's very little market for that. Mm. I was very fortunate to be published twice by Hatchet in, in literary fiction, and I don't think it would happen now. Um, but I was very lucky that they took a chance on me, and I was incredibly fortunate. But what I'm writing now is slightly genre fiction. So you can make it in sci-fi speculative if you're hardworking and you know a bit about marketing and you can think on your feet. Mm. Mm. Um, and as a matter of fact, uh, for the Jane Austen-esque books, which I did self-publish, I received four offers of, of publication from proper publishers, not famous ones, but proper ones. And I was actually advised by the Society of Authors not to take them up on it. They said, with your background, they're taking more royalties out of you than they will probably put in in terms of marketing. Okay. And you'll be more dedicated if you do it yourself. Mm. So in terms of somebody like you, I could see you writing sci-fi. You look like a sci-fi guy to me. Do I? Do I? Yeah. That's that, that, well, no one's ever said that about me before. But thank, well, thank, thank you very much. So, so you were going to do sci-fi or mystery. Yeah, I could see you as mystery or maybe thriller. Yeah. Um, something like that. You could do it. You could do it. Yeah. It takes a lot of effort, but you can do it, mm. and you can be successful at it on your own. And unless you get a big five publisher, I actually think you're better off on your own mm. because people aren't swiping your royalties yeah. and not doing so much. Mm-hmm. Because I was thinking more around uh, a kind of a uh, almost sort of like self help type stuff, and and because uh, I'm very interested in leadership and um, pe- 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 people and how how because again part of the reason why I'm doing this podcast is because I believe that everyone has a purpose, and if yeah. they can unlock that and and really make it happen, then the world would be a much much better place. And so one of one of my uh, passions is about uh, helping people to 
to to to you know, you know create an environment where other people can can thrive and uh, and so so yes if I was gonna if I was gonna write in fact part of the reason again why I'm doing the podcast is to is because writing I'm finding hard to get the time to do it so talking is something that I seem to be able to find the time to do. So, yeah, yeah. So, um, so, so yeah, so if I can talk into a microphone, then potentially that can then be transcribed and could be, could be turned yeah. into a book. But what brings even, um, you know, uh, educational books and, and, and leadership books and business books, et cetera, to life is stories. Yes, it is. That's what captures people's attention. But having said that, you've, you've touched on a major market. In fact, it's, it's one of the growth markets. Um, not only is nonfiction easier to sell than fiction, but something to do with leadership and potential and, and making you realize your potential as a human being, that is so mega. Mm. Um, that in a way, that's a problem. It's a little bit like romance in that, in that there's so much competition, but there's also a massive, massive market. And you can speak so well, so you could really promote yourself. And a lot of people can't. A lot of really, really good writers are completely tongue-tied. They say, I'm on a podcast. Oh, dear. Mm. Oh, help. Yeah. You know, and, and it's no good to be like that because you don't represent yourself properly. Sure, and 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 I suppose that's having having that uh, that 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 confidence, confidence to be able to talk. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because when I listen, got that. and I, I've listened to a couple of your podcasts because I wanted oh. to be prepared. And I I think that what is great is that um, you're incredibly positive and supportive to other people, and you want them to succeed. You're trying to to, to find out why they've succeeded or what what could help them to succeed. Hmm. And so it is it is an inspiring idea. You could get a book out of it. Yeah, yeah, good. Sure. Right, so there you go, and and I and so I think the first step really is to kind of believe, believe that that's something that you can do, and uh, and and then and then it's about then applying applying the time uh, uh, to do that. So finding that finding that passion and and working out well, what is it? What is it that I want for my life? And then and then actually, I suppose it, then it's a bit about the discipline to be able to, to to be able to dedicate that time that time to it. I guess you know I'm not as keen on discipline as a lot of people. I think if you're meant to do something, you're going to find the time somehow, even if it's the middle of the night. Mm -hmm. And I also think that books can be overly outlined. They can be overly plotted. They can be overly um, the books that I always love. The books that seem to rise to the top of the heap are the ones that feel when you're reading them as so if they were just written in a heartbeat mm. and i would just i would i would let go of the sort of discipline aspect and instead i would say to you if i was you i would say to myself right i know i can do this i'm incredibly articulate i'm going to sit down and just allow my inhibitions to go and just write mm. and even if some of it's rubbish there's going to be a kernel in there that you can work on mm. and then the next time it will it will explode at some point it will explode okay Right, well, I'm going to do that, and now, and and all of all of this conversation is is leading me back to ask you a question that I, I'm a bit frightened to ask, but I'm going to anyway. So, so why why are you not very good at writing erotica? I think it's because I'm married. <laughs> no, seriously, I, I honestly do. I, I, the idea of my husband reading my erotica just turns me cold with fear. Well, fair and enough. So, even though we have, I, you know, I just sort of feel I can't go there. So, yeah. you know, it, it's not about 
I just think that's the reason. Yeah. And the other thing, we edit each other's books, you see. My husband is a prominent professor. And at this very moment, what I'm really, really working on hardest is his book, Concert Life in London, from 1900 to 1914. There is not a word of erotica in it. <laughs> and, and I'm just sitting here and I'm, I'm really helping. I'm, I'm making this book more human and more and less academic. And I'm really trying to make it fly. Yeah. And, and he's fantastic with my books because my books fly, but they're not always... Um, he, he edits them perfectly. Mm-hmm. So if I was to write erotica, I'd want him to edit it and I wouldn't be able to ask him. Okay, fair enough. There you go. You've got a team on the go there. Then you've got to keep the team motivated and on, 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 and on the job, haven't you? So that's uh, that makes perfect sense. And I do think that, you know, it, it's about finding, but it's about finding that passion and if you if you if you've got a kind of a skill, but but you apply it to an area that doesn't really drive you or move you, then it's going to feel clunky and uh, and just just going to feel all wrong. And I suppose what I'm taking from what you're saying is is that actually it's about finding that thing that gets you into that state of flow. Exactly. Mm-hmm. That is the dream. And when it does happen, it's so wonderful that I have written right the way through the night. Um, so yes, it is. It is fantastic, and I think that was what I missed when I was doing ghostwriting. I was so happy to have had my child, but she needed me less and less. And I began to think this ghostwriting—it's slightly selling your soul, you know, because what you're doing is you're you're selling your talent, and you're not even getting—you're not even mentioned. You're not allowed to be mentioned, mm. and you're not allowed to mention that you've done it. Yeah. And 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 so it really is—it's a kind of—you really do become a ghost. You really do feel as if you become transparent and not seen. And after a while, you just kind of think, hang on, I'm ready to be seen. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I well, think that is part of it as well. Well, so with a, with a gold medal um, in uh, historical in the Global and Pencraft Book Awards and runner-up in Action Adventure and Independent Press Awards and um, a I've court, been very fortunate. quarter-finalist in Publishers Weekly's Book Life Award. I mean, it's just... Um, it's just it's just fantastic at your your accolade. So Well, you were about to say at my age, and I think you're right because I wasn't gonna say your age. I think in a way you feel freer. Once you once you turn fifty, you just kind of feel like, right, if I'm gonna do it, I'm gonna do it now. Mm. And I think that was what I felt. Mm. And I think that's what I've been doing. Excellent. And I also feel that that um that you get a sort of validation out of succeeding as a ghostwriter. But there's a secret part of you going, Why am I a ghost? Mm. Mm. <laughs> and maybe American, I don't know. But um maybe there's a part of me that wanted to be you know, you were very kind about my cello playing, and I played with a lot of wonderful orchestras, and I toured a lot. But I was never a solo cellist. I was never Dupre. I was never Rastopovich. Mm-hmm. So there's always a part of me that sort of thought, well, I wasn't good enough, you see. And that was that was a wound that needed healing. Okay, okay. So your um, story then, uh, you've had some successes, but you've also had some 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 challenges. Yeah. Um I mean, I mean, I'm interested in finding out a bit about some of the challenges that you've overcome to achieve what what you've achieved in life. I mean, is there anything that you'd be happy to share about, you know, your life as a musician or your life as an author or or, or life challenges around that which have perhaps influenced some of the decisions that you've taken? Probably the worst time of my life, and I know this sounds weird, but I grew up in Asia because my father was an American diplomat, and I uh, and I loved it. I absolutely loved it. I can't remember South Korea where I was born, but I remember Bangkok, loving Bangkok. We adored Singapore, um, and we absolutely 
had the best time ever, my sister and me, she's one year younger, in Myanmar. And after Myanmar, I was 12, my father, under pressure from my mother, um, moved back to America. He didn't want, he wanted to stay in Asia. He wanted to carry on until he got to China and was the ambassador in China. Anyway, so she, he, because he loved my mother so much, he gave that up for her and went into defense intelligence. And we came back to Washington. I left to school in Myanmar where there were seven people in my grade, seven people. And they were all my friends for an intermediate school where there were 400 in my year. And I had a major nervous breakdown. That was the first of my nervous breakdowns. I've had several. Um, one of them was about IVF. <laughs> but anyway, that was the first and in many ways the worst one was that. And I just felt completely displaced. I felt completely out of where I wanted to be. I felt I had no, I had no role. Nobody cared about me. I, I had no, I had no I had I was not being identified. I was I was just one of a million, it seemed to me, people. And they all had a different culture for me because I'd grown up abroad. So I think you asked I've been asked before, what made you a writer? I think that shock was partly what made me a writer because I wrote my first novel when I was 13 and it was terrible. Oh my god, it was so bad. I cannot <laughs> that novel was. I still have it. Handwritten. Um I still have that awful novel. Um anyway, I'm not gonna bore you with the novel, but it was it, I think the fact that that was when I started to write because I felt so driven to express what I was going through. Mm. Um and that was the first of my many um many, four, um, situations where I were really, really depressed. So I have struggled with depression, for okay. sure. Okay. And so um, have you found a way of uh, navigating yourself through depression? I think I have, for sure. But it took me a long time. It took me ages, in fact. Um, it took me until until my daughter left for Oxford, really. Mm. Um, I. I wasn't depressed all that time, not at all. Most of the time, people say, you depressed? You must be crazy, but I'm good at hiding it. Um, but no, I was actually, I had Freudian therapy for, for years. Mm. I was literally on the couch because I just couldn't feel I was expressing myself on the cello. I didn't feel confident enough to, to, to go back to the writing. Um, and all of these things were sort of happening to me and with the infertility as well. Um, so, yeah, what happened to me, what I would say... Well, I don't think I'm going to be depressed again, famous last words, but my dear father did die in December and I didn't get plunged into depression. I was amazed. Um, it's energy healing. I don't know if you've heard of energy healing. Have you ever heard I of have, it? I have heard of it, yeah. yeah, yeah. Right. Well, that was, what, that was what changed it for me, Okay. okay. frankly. Right. And that, that has released me in a way that nothing else has to feel as if I can now not just not only express myself as a writer, um, but be brave enough as an entrepreneur, which you've got to be if you're going to if you're going to turn down publishers, even small ones, you know, mm. or medium sized ones and do it yourself. And the other thing is I, I feel more expressive as a cellist. I mean, I'm actually playing the Elgar concerto in November. Mm. Um, it's maybe my last concerto. I don't practice as much as I used to. Um, and I'm not as young as I used to be but um but i just feel as if now i can i can i can express myself how i want as i want in whatever way i want and i owe that to energy healing okay okay so just just for the benefit of the of of, of our audience just just oh. talk us through what, what that involves well i was lucky enough to uh, have a close friend who was an opera singer and um and she went into energy healing 
um, as a sort of second career because opera singing is incredibly difficult. You don't get to be an opera singer and you're sort of in the chorus as a rule. You've got to be soloist or nothing. Anyway, she was a soloist or nothing. And what it happens with energy healing is you start off the session and you talk just as you and I are talking, as if we're close friends, as if we know each other well, and as if we know we're going through. And we're very, 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 very honest. And she gives as much as I do in that sort of session. Then what happens is you lie on the healing table and she hovers her hands over you and she feels the energies in your body and whether or not they're in alignment and she can actually adjust those. I don't know how it's some kind of training, which is, it, well, it took her three years and she's so good at it that she testified at the House of Commons about it. Um, she was invited to testify at the House of Commons um, when they were talking about the bill of homeopathic medicine. Mm. So, but she's so gifted. I mean, I wouldn't tell most people this, but I feel I can tell you. Um, she's, she's actually cured a cancer. Now, it wasn't in a person, but it was a definite cancer. In fact, it was about to murder this cat. It was, it was most of the cat's intestines were a cancer, and they got an MRI to prove it. And the woman came to her and said, I know you can't cure the cat, but just put your, your hands over the cat and see if you can make her happier before she dies. And so she did. My friend did. Mm. My energy healer did. And the cancer disappeared. And the vet will testify to this. She wow. is that gifted. Okay. Wow. It is absolutely phenomenal. Okay. She can do with her hands. Yeah. She's a born healer. Mm. And and um and she healed me in, not physically, but she healed my my constant warring between the music and the writing mm. and my constant self-doubt. Okay. Because it does sound like there's there's been a kind of a underlying thing thing there for you. Well, it has a, been since I was twelve. Yeah. yeah. Twelve was a big, big problem. Yeah. Yeah, because you describe yourself as lucky as well. I mean, you describe yourself as lucky, <laughs> lucky quite a few times, but but it sounds it sounds like you've you've sort of made made your own luck. I think that's very kind of you. I think I have been incredibly lucky. I've been incredibly lucky. I was gifted at two things, and I met the right man at the right time, which is why I'm not writing erotica. And, <laughs> and, um, and I was very, very, very fortunate to have my child. Yeah. Because they said, you're wasting your money. Mm. We had six IVFs that had failed. They literally, they were that honest. They sat me down, and, they, and my husband as well, and they said, you are wasting your money. We honestly don't think it's ever going to work for you. Mm. Just give we said one more go and we got our daughter who's an amazing girl mm. and she got a first at oxford and a full scholarship to study chinese literature at, at beijing and she just she's just phenomenal and and such a loving wonderful amazing person so i've been incredibly lucky yeah okay well congratulations congratulations and uh, and yeah it's uh, it's amazing that she's had such uh, such success isn't it Yes, yes, I think so. But she's been blessed as well. Is that is that so? Is is that uh, is that in your in in your DNA or? Uh... <laughs> I I think I have had to struggle to succeed, and she will have to struggle to succeed because she's so ambitious. Mm. Uh, she wants to go to Harvard for a PhD, and it's very hard to get into. It will also bankrupt us. But never mind. We only have one kid, so mm. it'll bankrupt us. So that's fine. Yeah. Um, no, but I I just feel um I feel my my husband's genes have a lot to do with it. He got a first at Oxford when he was only 19. He got into Oxford at 16. So I don't take credit for her brains at all. I, I, I just think I've just been so fortunate to have her when I was told it was never going to happen. Yeah, yeah. 
But the mind is an incredible thing, though, isn't it? So I think uh, I think there's there's a there's a lot there's a lot to be said for for having that having that faith and that belief. So you, you were told you were wasting your money, and yet did did you believe that it was going to happen one more go? Did was that belief there or? That is such a good question. That's an absolutely brilliant question. You know, I've never even asked myself that question. I think I always feel in life that what is going, that is what happens is what's meant to happen. Mm-hmm. I've always, I've always accepted what's happened in that kind of way. Um, so when my father died in December, I was devastated, but I also felt that it was meant to happen. And um I felt that I was, I think, I, to be perfectly honest, I do think, God, this sounds so arrogant. I can't believe I'm going to say this on the air. I honestly do feel that I was meant to have a child because I so desperately wanted it. And yet lots of women do and they don't have a child. I felt that I would be a good mother. I don't actually think I was a very good mother. I think actually I was a pretty terrible mother. But I secretly always thought before I was a mother, I was going to be a really great mother. So (laughs) I I think I was wrong, but I think I secretly felt wrongly that I was going to be a great mother. Mm, mm. So that belief, so that belief was there. And and so it sounds like that belief was there. So, so uh, when, when you, again, when you hear people talking about um, how you can make a difference in the world, as an individual, or how, how anybody can. Firstly, it's about really, really wanting, wanting it, having that um, cer- certainty about why, why it is I'm here, and then really wanting it, and then almost becoming kind of obsessed with it, and um, and really going after it. And that's why people who are successful, you know, practice the most perhaps mundane detail that other people might see is well, what are you doing that for? You know, the whole 10,000 times to get it right type of thing, or, or they almost drive themselves to distraction because they, they, they desire this outcome to such an extent, but that kind of dedication and, um, and uh, whether it be, whether it be kind of in an internal feeling and that an emotional energy you put into that, or whether it's kind of a physical energy that you put into practicing a specific skill with to, develop the dexterity or whatever it might be that is what makes people um successful but it starts with a thought it starts with an idea it starts with a belief but i also think that you can be so divided i mean i i did the ten thousand hours bit believe me um i did it for, for sure i practiced the challenge till my fingers bled um but i <laughs> this is me rebelling i think i would i would be doing it while i was reading gone with the wind i'd be doing all my scales and i'd whip over a page and then rep butler said this and i whip over a page and another scale so i was always divided yeah. see what i mean there was yeah. a part of me that's always just been stuck down the middle yeah. and it doesn't it doesn't know which way to go um and i think that's really ironic but you know to say about the thing that I thought I would have a child, I, I didn't believe it at the time because I, I, I took the, pr- the pregnancy test and said I was pregnant and I didn't believe it. I went back to the chemist, I bought another pregnancy test, it said I was pregnant, I still didn't believe it. I was too embarrassed to go back to the same test. I went, <laughs> I went to another chemist. Then when they said I was pregnant, I just burst into tears. Yeah, yeah. It just burst into tears. Wow, wow. Well, that's uh, that's just an amazing story. And, and you know, give... Gives hope for, to to say to so many people, and I I, I re- very recently interviewed a um, a guy called Doctor um, Francis Akenemo, who who's written a book called Depression Lies, and uh, and there's a chapter in his book where he talks because people say that hope is not a strategy, right? But actually, actually, he he the way he looks at it is that actually hope hope is 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 something that's worth 
uh, worth worth spending your time on, investing your your time in, because from from that hope comes that uh, that 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 start of the kind of optimistic realism, if you like, which is which which is is a positive thought that potentially can really kindle something into life, you know. And uh, so, um, yeah, I hope that's true because I I do believe it. So mm. I hope you're right. Mm. <laughs> well, I'm I'm quite optimistic about about lots of things and. Sometimes, sometimes, uh, you know, uh, actually, I find that want, wanting things to be good, wanting a good outcome, can actually sometimes turn me into a bit of a monster because I kind of, I kind of want it to be so good, and I've been looking forward to this for special family time or whatever it is, and then if it's not perfect, I then some kind, some way, I'm sort of disappointed or. Or, or saddened by that, or even hurt by the fact that people aren't enjoying this glorious family event that that, that we're all supposed to be in perfect harmony on. But I guess um, life's not I think like that's that. Very, sometimes. very common. I also think it's very, very male. No. Um, well, I wrote my speculative fiction. I wrote it. It was narrated by a man, and that was partly because I felt it was something I'd missed out on, and I felt bad I'd missed out on being a man. Hmm. But I actually feel that what you just described—I think women are more realistic that way. We we prepare everything, hmm. and we hope it's going to be the most amazing family experience. But we're not—we'd be surprised if it happened. Whereas <laughs> my my husband's like you. He's like, why well, wasn't that the most amazing Christmas ever? You know, we worked so hard. Yeah. <laughs> I do actually think that's one of the differences between men and women yeah. for me yeah. is that in a weird way women are more realistic that we have more realism yeah it could be as well could be i don't know and you have to be so careful you have to be so careful these days don't you about the whole kind of thing about about men and women again i made a comment the other day about it was about depression and um and talking about the fact that men that there's a lot of pressure on men to uh to, to to be the strong man and to to not have a problem and very to, hard for a man to admit to depression but depression it's doesn't a very strong man to admit to depression in my opinion yeah, yeah. i think it's okay if you're a woman and you say i was depressed i think if you're a man there's still a stigma and i don't understand why mm, mm. but you have to yeah, be a strong the most creative men i know generally speaking the ones i know best uh from my work especially have been depressed mm, mm. Well, one in four, apparently. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but but is it not also true that you need to you, you need to be a um you, you you can you can be depressed as a woman and and be a be a strong woman to accept and then and then manage that situation. I think where we score is we're willing to ask for help better. Mm. I think when I got depressed, I was just I would try anything. <laughs> What didn't I try? I tried every drug that was going. Um, and then I had Freudian therapy, I had Kleinian therapy, I had uh, cognitive behavior therapy. And most people wouldn't have even known I was depressed. So, you know, it was just something inside me that, that I needed help. And I was not afraid to ask for it, you know. And I know some fantastic writers who I won't mention, but obviously, but, but they just, I couldn't go there. I couldn't go there. Mm. And I just go, we well, suffer through it. Why should you suffer through it? Yeah. And that's a really important message for absolutely anybody. Yeah. Uh, whether male, female, or, 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 or however, however you identify, um, you know, to, 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 to ask for help. Yeah, don't be afraid. Never be afraid to ask for help. I certainly wouldn't be where I am now if I hadn't asked for help. Yeah. And also, um, I, I, I find it quite liberating 
to to be able to uh, to tell people that I've made a mistake. Yeah, but that's rare. That's good. How do you feel about how do you feel about that? (laughs) I made so many mistakes. I've hardly ever done anything right. So I don't know. I mean, look at the way I dropped the ball when I'd been picked up by a big five publisher. I mean, I'd been picked up. They offered me a contract and I had two books. They both did really well. And I just completely dropped the ball because I was so upset I couldn't have a baby. Hmm. Now, that was just a mega mistake, you know, and it's amazing that I've come back from that. But but I just think, no, I mean, I think uh, I don't. I, th- I just think making mistakes is the human condition. So mm. if you don't make a mistake, you deserve some kind of medal. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, but that's how we learn, isn't it? Isn't that how yeah. we learn? Uh, yeah. Or, you know, if we don't learn from it, that's kind of, you know, yeah. you're going to learn at some point, I guess, because, because uh, otherwise it was carry on being, carry on being painful. Uh, yes. But, um, but, but, but you have come back from that, haven't you? Yes, I have. But that was, that was a major, major blow. Because not only did my publisher dump me, but my agent dumped me. My agent was a very famous agent. I won't mention her name, but she's had Booker Prize winners. And she had a lot of faith in me. And when she dumped me, I just thought, I'm not as talented as, as she thought I was. Hmm. And that was just wrong. <laughs> yeah. But that was how I perceived it. And yeah. then I can't even have a baby. <laughs> I mean, most women can do that. You know? hmm. <laughs> they may not get a big publishing contract, but they can have a baby. And I couldn't even do that. So. Hmm. Yeah. Well, you've done it now. I've done it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, So, what what drives your decisions now? Then to 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 do when when you when you've got a choice to make, so you okay, one more concert perhaps, and uh, all of that, and you know, Elgar, good choice by the way, um, and um, and so so, what what drives your decisions now? Well, the Elgar was driven for a very personal reason. I came to I came to Britain to study with Dupre. And she was my heroine. She was my idol. I started playing the cello because I could still see her. My parents took me to see a concert and she was playing Dvorak in a blue dress, the sort of dress nobody would wear these days, like a, a like, Di- like Princess Diana's bridal gown. It went out to there, you know, with the golden hair, the blue dress. And I just thought that is who I want to be. And so when she accepted me as a pupil, Oh, my God, that was one of the happiest moments of my life. I thought, I'm going to go study with Dupre. And it was all a nightmare because that was when she got sick. I had oh, I had two lessons, I think. And and um, she accepted me by tape, by the way. And then she said to all of us, her remaining pupils, there were about 12, um, I can't teach anymore. I just can't do it. It's 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 killing me slowly um is teaching i can hardly play and um and she handed us over to her cello teacher william please she called him her cello daddy and that again was where i was lucky because dupre was a genius of geniuses and she plays the elgar like nobody will ever play it again in my humble opinion not only my opinion that's basically what most people think and uh, but her as a teacher william please was even better he was just amazing and he completely altered my way of looking at the child and gave me confidence and he was just like a second grandfather and I never knew one of my grandfathers that's why he was my second one and not my and so basically um no so that again was where I was lucky and yet I thought I was unlucky and the reason for the Elgar was simply because she plays that transcendently And I'm sure you've heard it because you're so musical. Yeah, yeah. But it is just, I mean, you listen, I've been listening to everybody because I have the chance to play with an orchestra again. Mm. And I've been listening to everybody and nobody comes within a mile. Yeah, yeah. I can't remember who it was, or I, I, but I saw that in in Bristol when I was uh, when I was much long, younger. I saw that live. I was but quite fortunate. My parents were, took, yeah. took me to classical concerts and stuff and, uh, and all that. And I, I really loved it. 
loved it. Beautiful. Yeah. But we're yeah. both so fortunate that they did. Mm. My parents did as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Amazing. So uh, the question I asked you was, what drives your decisions to do what you do? And and you and you spoke about one decision. What about what about what about the big life decision? Or maybe that was a big life decision for you. I'm not looking to demean it in any way. But, no, no, but what about the big the big life decisions? Uh, how, what is your drive now? I think I'm pretty single-minded now, despite the Elgar, hmm. um, that that uh, the writing is 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 it, and I, I'm putting my whole heart and soul into that. It's easier now, of course, because because my daughter's left home, hmm. and we've got two little Daxons to look after. Hmm. But um, basically, I can do I can do what I want to do, and and um, we're very fortunate. We've got a place in Crete. And I love to write there, looking out on the sea. So, no, I mean, in many ways, I sort of feel that my life decisions have kind of been made now. Mm. And they're kind of, I mean, you can never say they're at an end because you never know what's going to be around the corner um, in any sense. But I sort of feel happy with what I'm doing. And, and what, what uh, part do you feel that a purpose has in your life now? That's a really deep question. Mm -hmm. Oh, that may be too deep for me. But purpose, um, you have to remember that I'm a very impulsive person, so it could change. (laughs) (laughs) But I feel at the moment, what I feel at the moment, and I do feel a purpose, I definitely feel a purpose, and I feel almost as if I'm, I'm, I'm making up for lost years because those years that I mistakenly thought that what I was meant to do is to play the cello, I'm now, I've gone the other way. Okay, so let me ask the question a different way then. So, so who are you writing for? I, this sounds so pretentious, but it is actually true. Um, I don't believe that we ever die. I think we go on. And I believe that the person I'm writing for, you're just going to laugh at me. Go ahead and laugh at me. But this is who I'm writing for is Jane Austen. I'm writing for her. Mm-hmm. And I think that she actually likes what I'm doing. That is so arrogant. I can't believe I'm saying it. But I honestly feel people keep saying, you write like Jane Austen. And this is not just people. This is Publishers Weekly, okay? They said it was pitch perfect, um, echoes the master herself. Um, So, in other words, I I have a knack of feeling my way into that world. And I'm just hoping that sometime after I die, I'll get to meet her and she'll say, that was cool. Brilliant. Well, that's a what what a great motivator though. If you're writing if you're writing Austin esque for Jane Austen, yeah, then you know, alive uh, alive or dead, if you pardon the phrase, um, <laughs> it, it's, it's it's further building on her legacy. Because again, if you're if you're an artist and if you and if you create something, or if you or if you, anything that you do in this world potentially, whether it's art or whatever, yeah. it doesn't have to be any impact or imprint that you make is is a legacy that you that you leave behind and oh, um, yes. and and then other people can then pick up that legacy and and it not just your work outlives you but also the work that other people do in, in, in that are inspired by you also well i don't know if i inspire that. anybody but i do believe very passionately that um everything we do even if it's just being kind to a friend is is leaving a part of a legacy mm-hmm. I mean, every single thing we do even letting somebody come out if in in traffic is 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 making an impact, a small impact, 
but an impact. I, I totally agree. Totally agree. Ra- ran- random acts of kindness are definitely the, yeah, no. they're, they're, they're the best things to do. And I do these little, uh, these little excerpts in or sort of shorter episodes on this podcast called tiny noticeable things. So TNTs. Okay, yeah. yeah. So because they've got, they've, oh, that, that was my microphone. So because they've got explosive, explosive power, you know, and, um, and, and yeah, little things like saying thank you or, 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 or being being grateful to somebody or, or, or asking somebody how they are and actually pausing long enough to listen to the answer rather than walking on by mm, make exactly. a difference. That's okay. A Thank you. Mm, okay, cool. So I'm going to ask you some uh, quick fire questions now, if that's okay. Okay. So the, the, so the mission is to answer this question or these questions in 20 seconds or less. Okay. Okay. So what's your favourite album and why? I've already said do praise Olga. Okay. Because and, I was lucky enough to know her. Right, okay. Good answer. That's definitely way less than twenty seconds. That's brilliant. Okay, so so what would be your perfect weekend? Uh, it would be uh it would be playing chamber music with friends and after that having a barbecue in the garden or maybe looking out over the sea in Crete. Beautiful. And what did your nine-year-old self love to do? <laughs> Ride horses. <laughs> really? I grew out of. I grew out of it. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like an expensive thing to do, but there you go. It's a very expensive thing to do. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, and I, I think I might know the answer to this question already, but I'm going to ask you anyway. So, what makes you lose track of time? Music. Um, reading. I think it's so important for a writer to read and so few do it. Um, um, and other things, just nature can make me lose track of time. If I'm just surrounded by something that's really beautiful or even just peaceful like today in the garden, there's nothing special about our garden in Orpington. It's just a very ordinary suburban garden, but the light was so lovely. Mm-hmm. That can, yeah. yeah. I, don't, I, just, I was um i was in greece last week for for a wedding really? yeah and uh and uh it's, it's my, my wife's cousin so my wife's my wife's of course a greek and uh and so uh so yes yeah, oh. so we for a family which is which is amazing but the but the light was just yeah. absolutely wonderful early in the morning and then and then again as, as as just about an hour before the sun came down it's just an, an unbelievable light um, it is one of the very special things about the place yes mm-hmm. Yeah. Beautiful. Okay, so um, is there any such thing as a stupid question? No. And what makes you cry with laughter? <laughs> what makes me cry with laughter? I don't often cry with laughter. Um, I don't know. That's a really good question. I can't think of anything that makes me cry with laughter. No, I just laugh. <laughs> okay. And and what makes you laugh then? <laughs> <laughs> some friend making some joke. Like, for example, I play tennis. I'm crazy about tennis. And this friend the other day said, um, it's, he, he made this joke. He said, of course, um, we were talking about tennis rackets. And he said, of course, Alice has um, five tennis rackets. And I said, no, 10. Because I'm always thinking the next, the next tennis racket is going to turn me into never to lover. And it, it never does for some reason. I don't know why that is. So I spend a hell of a lot on tennis rackets and then it never turns me into, anyway, mm. never mind. this is one of my major frustrations in life. And so just some quip like that, you know, that, that somebody is noticed that I've got this tennis racket fixation and like Imelda Marcus's shoes. Really. 
so that makes me laugh well that's good that sounds very that sounds very good so um you can give a little bit of a longer answer to this question if you like but you've um you've 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 changed careers a couple of times and then and then then gone gone back again and then gone back again um what for people that who are trying to transition from 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 one thing to another that might be from a sort of a job into fulfilling their passion or from one passion to another what advice would you give them I'm a bad person to ask because I've, I've, I've as I said, zigzagged back and forth and back and forth. If I had, if I had the maturity when I was younger that I have now, I would recognise that I didn't really ever quite have enough nerve to, to or talent either. I mean, not like Dupre, but I had enough talent to do what I did um, as a cellist. But my talent, I'm much more talented as a writer. But you don't have that sort of judgment when you're young, so it's hard. So I wouldn't say back yourself because you back your, you probably back yourself wrongly, same as I did. So what I would say, what I would say is try to listen to that kernel, that deep, deep, deep buried kernel of yourself that feels like the most authentic you. And I think especially when you're a teenager, you tend to get divorced from that. If you can find that and listen to that, that still small voice, probably it was always telling me to do another thing. Hmm. Probably. But I drowned it out with music. <laughs> <sighs> I, think, I think I did that for a few years as well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> especially playing the drums. Yes, the drums are very easy to drown out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> But that's really good advice, though to to take to take that time and just to just to be still and to be quiet and to to, to listen to that that deeper inner voice is um, yeah. It's, I, I sometimes uh, find myself going from one thing to another to another to another. Oh, I've always got this stuff to do, and I kind of I've produced podcast episodes saying about about don't don't be don't be so busy. Give yourself some time. And then I find myself ah, I'm doing it myself, you know, and. Well, um, and so I have to, I've actually, I actually have to set myself a reminder, <laughs> bizarrely. Another, an, sorry. That's a great idea. I set myself a reminder when I'm writing, just get up, walk about, yeah. don't get, let your fingers get stiff if you get carried away. Um, and the same thing with the cello. Yeah. Yes. I think reminders are great. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it, kind of passionate it, about something. yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's, 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 you know, setting yourself a reminder to, 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 you know, to, to think about you, um, I th it, it just works. It just works for me. Otherwise, the pace of life carries on, and and and, and you forget. Okay, so um, time time is all we have, uh, but we often act as though it's uh, it's it's infinite. But if if you if you knew you you had just just one year to live, what would you do? I just carry on doing what I'm doing. I'm happy with what I'm doing. But it's funny you should ask that because a friend of mine has got just about a year and a half to live. Mm. And what I said to him, and I do think this is important to think about because because of what you just said, is we're all dying. Some slower, some faster. He's dying faster, but we're all dying. Mm. So I think it's a very important question to think about. Mm. And I think it's one of those things that we're often in such denial about. So he happens to be dying faster, at least as far as I know, mm. than I am. But no, um, I'm happy with where I am, and I'm I'm really pleased with the work I'm doing, mm. and I feel good. That's great. Well, we know who you're doing it for, you see. So, um, <laughs> but yeah, I do I do find it helpful. I mean, p people think it's a bit weird uh, sometimes, but um, but I've, I've kind of I've kind of written my own obituary. Yeah. 
Because, that can be inspiring. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, it just, it just, it just makes you think because because time is finite, and so and it is that is pretty final, and uh, and and it just, I, it's not a morbid thing. It's kind of almost okay. So how would I want to be remembered and all that? And and um, I mean, you you said oh, this sounds so arrogant and all that sort of thing, and maybe me saying that sounds a bit self obsessed. But you know, we've got yeah. one, we've got one life, right? So um, so so. Or as far as we know, uh, so let's so let's let's live it. And you know, I I I've I've got beliefs which mean I believe in uh, I believe in eternal life as well. And uh, and so so you know, but for my life on this earth has has has, a, has a, it's finite, right? So 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 yeah. So so what would? But I... some are more finite than others, and it is a shock. I mean, my friend was shocked mm. because it just came out of nowhere. Um, but I, you know, the more I think about it, the more I think, in a way. He's gonna he's gonna do a whole lot in the next year and a half. Mm. He's not just sitting back. Mm, mm. I respect that. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> Okay, good. Well, um, Alice, it's been brilliant to talk to you. I've got just got a couple of. I've enjoyed every moment of it. Oh, good. Thank you. And uh, me too. Me too. And I've got sort of a couple more questions to ask to ask you. If that's okay. So, um, who? I, I'm not going to ask that question. Who inspires you the most, and why? It's, I, we know the answer to that. To pray, right? Yeah. Right. Fine. Good. So I won't ask you that question. So, the, so the question I'm going to ask you. And Jane Austen, right? Okay, yeah, that's that's not a bad double header. That no, it's so, not. Yeah, yeah. So, um, what's the most important lesson you've learned in your life so far? I think it comes back to listening to that, being in touch with that kernel of yourself, which is authentic. That's what I would say. Mm. Okay, great. Uh, it's been brilliant. Thank you so much. So, wh- where can people find you and follow your work? Well, thank you for asking. Um, I have a website, alicemcveigh.com. McVeigh is spelled rather oddly, M-C-V-E-I-G-H. Uh, it's my husband's name. I snitched it. Um, <laughs> my name is Alice. It was Alice Taylor. And one of my cello teachers, quite a famous guy called Janusz Starker, said, Alice Taylor, so boring a name. You should call yourself Alicia de la Chalore. <laughs> if I marry anybody with a decent name, I'm going to swipe it. So anyway, alicemcveigh.com and uh, my books, uh, Susan, a Jane Austen prequel and Harriet a Jane Austen variation are on Amazon and um, so is Last Star Standing by my pen name Spalding Taylor Hmm. and uh, thank you for having me I really enjoyed it amazing thanks for coming on so much thanks for listening to People With Purpose I hope you've enjoyed the show and are enjoying going on this journey please remember to like and subscribe and give us a five star review Uh, tell all your friends And if you're interested in finding out more about any of the things we've covered in this episode of People With Purpose, just get in touch. All the details are in the show notes. Thanks. Bye.